Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. My name is Tim Pearson. I'm a senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. All right. So, Kaylee, you had the interview this week and you spoke with Rachel Oppenheim, who is the chief revenue officer of Semaphore, a little media company that folks may have heard of given its launch recently and, and all the like attention and hype um, built up since uh, Ben Smith and Justin Smith announced they were forming this news outlet back in, I believe it was January. Um, Rachel obviously like runs the revenue organization. And I think, you know, some of our folks have said 75% of the revenue is coming from advertising and 25% coming from events. But I, I don't know how familiar I actually am with like what Semaphore's ad model is. What would Rachel have to say about that, Kaylee? Yeah, so we actually open up the conversation by talking about why she wanted to join Semaphore. And one of the reasons is because of how much of a hands-on role she had in formulating the revenue business. And so, yes, it's the 75-25 split between, you know, more traditional kind of branded content advertising um, and then events. But events is primarily sponsorship, so still technically advertising. But on the advertising side of things, it's very much a, you know, direct sold focus. There's not any programmatic... um, sold either, you know, in a private marketplace or open marketplace. It's not a part of the mix right now. Um, Rachel really talks about not only developing very close relationships with clients and being very client, like, first in how they perform their business, but also talking about getting really innovative and creative when it comes to campaigns. So she gives out a a couple examples with how some partners are, um, you know, they are the partner or the advertiser for a new product. Um, like Verizon is the uh, sponsor for this kind of text um, text message designed like interview format, um, which, you know, is kind of native, obviously, to like what Verizon does. So they're really focused on trying to not only really harness these like long-term relationships with advertisers and and clients, but also get really creative with what a campaign looks like across their website and newsletters. Got it. Okay. Speaking of examples, there was an example that uh, got a lot of attention um, this, you know, week that we're recording this of um, Chevron sponsoring a newsletter from Semaphore focused on climate change. Um, Chevron, not really a company that I associate as one really trying to protect the climate, or at least, you know, I feel like does a lot more harm than good as someone who spends a lot of time in the ocean and oil spills and all that. Um, I think that all really blew up after you spoke with Rachel Kaylee, but were you able to follow up with her with Semaphore on in terms of like what their response is to this controversy? Yeah, so you're right. We didn't get to touch on it um, in the interview, unfortunately. Uh, that came a little after. But yes, big oil is a big, uh, interesting choice for an advertiser on a climate product. Um, but yes, I did follow up with her because I think, you know, this conversation is so rooted in 
the decisions, intentional decisions that went into building their advertising business, it was only kind of fair to, you know, run this over to them and be like, any thoughts like that you can kind of share, you know, what was the decision behind this specific choice? Um, I think, you know, one thing to clarify that had been reported is Chevron was not their launch sponsor for this. Um, It's an advertiser that's running in tandem with several other advertisers across, you know, their products. Um, But what Rachel did say on the record that I could share is that advertisers have no bearing on our editorial coverage and we maintain a strict separation between news and third-party advertisement. We adhere to a robust ad acceptability guidelines that go above and beyond industry standards and and any ads that are featured across our products are transparently transparently positioned to the reader and clearly contextualizes advertising. So, yes, I mean, I guess the editorial and advertising delineation is really important in general in advertising. I do think the controversy around the actual choice of advertiser and the choice of product is an interesting one. And I think it just means that people are going to be very closely following Semaphore as the startup continues to grow and builds their advertising business. So uh, yeah, interesting choice though. Yeah. I am interested in like hearing how Semaphore builds their ad business. So I'm looking forward to listening to this interview. Um, I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Kayla. Cool. Thanks, Tim. Right, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I want to start out by asking you kind of the reason why you joined Semaphore, why it seemed like the next right move for your career. Um, because you came from the New York Times. You were there for about eight years, I think. I read correctly on your LinkedIn. Yes. Yeah. That's a very established, like traditional media company, right? Semaphore, big pivot to startup media, uh, newsletters. What was the kind of driving force behind that decision? Yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh, there there were so many different um, driving forces. And I think to start out with, I spent eight years at the New York Times, loved every minute of it. I love, you know, the brand and the team. I, I was not expecting to make such a kind of meaningful career change. Um, and so I actually think the bar was that much higher uh, for making this move um, just because of the, you know, great experience that I had and was having. But, um, you know, I started chatting with Justin and with Ben earlier in the year um, and really kind of conversation by conversation got more and more excited about the strategic vision, about the talent that they were assembling, um, about the kind of commitment that they had and that that I share really deeply, which is that um, kind of there needs to be more entrepreneurship and innovation and creativity applied to how premium independent journalism gets commercialized. So, um, you know, through each of those conversations, I became more and more and more convinced that the vision that they had set forth was so special and so exciting. Um, The talent that they were bringing together um, was just a really, really unique opportunity to work with a cross-section of colleagues that I I probably wouldn't have had the chance to to do before. Um, And then also just Justin and Ben are 
are legends. You know, these are two folks whose careers I had followed really closely, admired and looked up to, you know, between everything that Justin built at Bloomberg and everything that Ben accomplished when we were colleagues at the New York Times and before that as editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. Um, it felt like a really singular opportunity to get in on day one on the ground floor with some of the most experienced and successful operators in the media business to be a part of shaping it and to be able to just unleash maximum creativity and invention, um, which is really only possible in this way when you rebuild from scratch and from the ground up. So that was the opportunity. And um, it was a really, really clear, you know, step for me um, to be able to grow and to be able to build something um, that was in the spirit of what I had been building at the times, um, but gave me a chance to just continue to up-level it. Got it. And this is your first time holding the CRO role. Is that right? Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm curious, like, how much of a role you have in kind of, uh, you mentioned that uh, they were already kind of building a team and that partially inspired you to join. But how much of a, I guess, hands-on role did you have in designing what the team looked like and, you know, finding people on your staff that you thought would do a good job of, you know, building that vision that you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. And it actually it like ties in really closely with um, why it was that much more exciting an opportunity for me to go in and take the role, which is when you're a small team, you're a startup, you're lean, you know, you're working in this really scrappy way. Um, you know, you have a chance to actually touch so many different components of the business from design and product to audience development to data to, um, you know, how all of the teams are structured to sequencing to our commercial strategy, our products, our capabilities. Um, so really, really close hand in shaping that um, and building on, on the vision that the team had out of the gate um, in January, February, March of this past year. I started up in mid-April of 2022. Um, so a lot of kind of early theories had, had been advanced, but really between April and when we launched last week um, is when we put meat on the bones and started really architecting out the contours of the product and of the business around the product. Got it. And I think, um, and I do want to get more into like the actual organization of the sales team and some of the more like really operational kind of sides of things as well, because I'm very curious about how these things are are built and structured. Um, but before getting brick into Brick by that, brick, day by day, <laughs> with a lot of hard work and not as much process as someone like me is used to. But like that, that's right. part of the adventure of it too, is um, being able to take a step back and say, you know, why did we do it like this? You know, could we design a system from day one that solves maybe for some of the bumps or the inefficiencies or the pain points with kind of bigger, more operationalized media companies? So um, process-wise, it's all incredibly fluid, um, but piece by piece as we're building it out, it's actually been pretty exciting to say, oh yeah, like, you know, I've, I've seen this go wrong before, you know, I, I've seen, I've, I've experienced this, maybe we can design something from day one that's going to scale a lot more seamlessly um, and also just be a better experience for our clients. Like that's one of the my obsessions is being really, really client forward in how we design our teams and operating models. So the, a lot of the processes are designed backwards from how our clients and partners like to work as well. Interesting. Yeah. And I, there's so much to unpack there. I think one of the things I'm curious about from like a CRO role right now is the kind of flattening I've seen of revenue teams lately. I think oh, yeah. um, we did a CRO series 
in August this year where a lot of the people that we had on, so that was um, Ryan Pauly and um, Joy Robbins and uh, Mia Libby, like a lot of people were talking about how in the past year they've had to take on a lot more responsibilities, including overseeing subscription revenue in addition to advertising. And I think um, I recently wrote a story about how commerce teams are starting to be restructured so that CROs are overseeing that arm of it as well. And there's just this flattening, there's this flattening of, I think, how media companies are thinking about revenue and how those revenue streams can bolster each other in a variety of ways. So it's taking diversified arms, which is important, but finding ways to make them work for each other. And I'm curious about how you as the CRO are structuring kind of those internal meetings so that you're um, up to date on the latest editorial products or new launches, or, I mean, obviously you just launched an entire company, but like, how are you kind of forming your role to be really in the weeds with not just advertising at this point, not just the clients, but the kind of holistic semaphore team? Yeah, definitely. And that trend that you just touched on, I think is so powerful and so real. Um, And I don't know if it's a flattening is one way to put it. I think about it a little bit as, um, like orchestration amongst many different Mm -hmm. revenue streams that can ultimately fuel and feed each other. Having a really strong and healthy subscriber revenue, you know, uh, business can fuel your advertising business, can fuel your licensing business, can fuel your events business. These are all different components in the same machine, which hopefully is designed really intelligently and humming along so that all of these different wings of the business can really work together and and fuel success for each corner of the company. So I'm definitely seeing that. And it's interesting because even within what we would think about a traditional CRO role of just overseeing the ad sales and advertising parts of the business, even even single revenue streams are becoming so much more cross-functional and so much mm-hmm. more interconnected and interdependent. We need to be able to coordinate with our design teams, our product teams, our audience development teams, our comms and PR teams, all to pull off really creative, integrated programs and partnerships. So I'd say um, one of the, again, I think superpowers of starting from scratch is being able to design a media company with like, inter, uh, I don't know if interoperability is the right way to put it, but cross-functional work as Mm -hmm. a bedrock of how we work um, because we're not in a world anymore where, you know, the advertising team exists as a silo, the subscription or consumer revenue teams exist as a silo. Um, All of these are interconnected parts of of a revenue ecosystem versus discrete business lines. So we're definitely seeing that. And I think one of our superpowers, again, is being able to start from a blank page and be able to design a team that from inception our, our team design, our org structures, our um, day-to-day workflows are all rallying around cross-functional work um, in a way that is really, really hard to pull off when you're entrenched in existing operating models. Um, and so that's yeah. that was another huge selling point for me of being able to come is like, oh my gosh, like I, I am so clear-eyed about the direction we need to go and how we need to better serve our readers, our clients, all of our different stakeholders, but it takes a very different way of working. And I'm sure that sentiment was echoed in your conversations with other great CROs that you mentioned. I've got so much respect for for all those folks. Yeah. And so, I mean, 
Kind of going back to your past experiences and again, looking at a very traditional business model that, uh, or maybe not traditional business model, maybe that maybe that's not, not, not the right word to say, but like the times, which is, you know, cent- like almost two centuries old at this point, like yeah. how different is it from the way you were working on your team at the times compared to now? Like, it, do you already kind of see the differences and and how you were able to work with other teams? Like, was it very kind of entrenched in, at the times in your experience? Um, yes and no. I mean, they're one of the most exciting, um, just dimensions of my time when I was there was, um, on a team, um, that was focused on, um, like kind of innovative technology partnerships. It's a big part of my career. It's something I'm hugely passionate about. It's something that I also want to kind of bring forward um, as we build out the team and the strategy at Semaphore 2. That kind of work took incredible cross-functional collaboration. Um, we're trying to do that at Semaphore on, on just about every program, on every level. Uh, but it, it's a, a kind of apples to oranges in some ways. I mean, the Times is, as you mentioned, um, you know, a, a centuries-old, huge news organization. Um, we, we just launched its day one. I think one of the most exciting differences and opportunities and growth areas for me professionally is that, you know, I had a lot of um, history and legacy to tap into and lean on, whereas this has been an exercise in net new invention, net new creativity, um, you know, inventing stages, inventing products and franchises and platforms. Um, So that's, again, like been one of the most exciting um, opportunities coming to Semaphore is really getting pushed and stretched um, to to invent from scratch, um, and and that's been really exciting for me. So there, there's a couple of differences just because we're at, we're at such different places in our life cycles and in our businesses. Um, but one of the biggest opportunities for me has been an open field for new invention and creativity. Um, you know, without um, kind of pre-existing processes to to anchor it. Yeah, of course. So getting into the revenue side of things for a minute, um, it's, I think, been reported a few times that Semaphore is monetized 75% um, with advertising and 25% with events. So advertising right now, obviously, it's a interesting economic time period and advertising typically is a little bit of a stressed area for media companies in this early recession days. I don't know exactly where we're defining it at this point, but I'm curious, you know, what are some of the struggles that you're maybe facing with being a advertising first revenue stream? Have you, I guess, needed to change strategy from what you were initially uh, expecting to launch with? No, we, we haven't had to change our strategy at all. Um, I, I wouldn't say change it. I think I think we've made a couple of smart um, just prioritization calls about mm. where we want to invest. Um, I think overarchingly, we're we're sensitive to it. We're following um, real the ad market really really closely. But there are a couple of things that are actually insulating Semaphore and have represented wind in our sales as we go out to market and meet with advertisers from every industry, from every market. This has been the most global go-to-market experience of my entire career. Um, We spent a ton of time over the past couple of months um, in other markets in Asia and have been really, really proud of the positive reception 
we're really focused on kind of B2B-esque corporate reputation advertising. Um, I think Mm -hmm. the audiences that we're trying to build around represent influentials, opinion leader audiences in the U.S. and around the world. And across every industry and category that we've been engaged with from an advertiser and partnership perspective, they're under a lot of pressure from an economic perspective, but they're also under a lot of pressure to drive positive brand reputation, to engage critical stakeholders, and to reach audiences in new ways. I think everybody is um, really, really honed in on the fact that innovation is a necessity in this media landscape, placing bets on new partners, experimenting, um, you know, drilling into new platforms is, is incredibly important. So we've we've really experienced a lot of positive momentum, um, both um, from an advertiser perspective, from a strategic partner perspective, and do think that the combination of not just where we sit in the market, which is really kind of corporate reputation advertising focused, but how we're approaching the market, which is less transactional or traditional advertising and really geared more towards customized, very, very creative, um, multi-channel from day one, which is pretty rare for a new media company. Usually you kind of start with one channel and then grow. We've come out of the gate with a multitude of different channels and activation types. I think how we're going to market and what part of the market we're really prioritizing has insulated us some from the pressures that are facing the broader marketplace. Um, So, I'm, I'm encouraged. We're certainly ahead of where we expected to be um, and, and think in a lot of ways that launching into the teeth of a tough economic environment can really sharpen and strengthen a business model. And we're cognizant of, of that aspect as well. Got it. So I wanted to get into um, your launch partners for a second because I feel like um, maybe that could be a good kind of example of some of the things you talked about with being multi-channel and focusing Mm -hmm. on uh, really kind of creative uh, advertising with them and not the traditional um, advertising you mentioned. But with your launch partners, I am curious about the timing of that, like how early you got them to sign on and if there were any challenges with keeping them locked in through that, you know, summer hit of an economic slump, if there was any kind of like additives that were needed to be brought into the conversation or if you found that they were kind of, you know, locked and ready to go even in an earlier conversation? Yeah. I mean, we we began conversations throughout the spring into the summer, um, you know, and, and as we pressed towards our launch last week, um, I think that we're so, so grateful for the founding partners that we have, brands like MasterCard and Pfizer. We're working with Verizon, with Genesis, with Qualcomm, and also with Tata. Um, so it's a real global cohort of companies, all blue chip uh, brands and advertisers. Um, I think these are these are companies that really, really believed in the mission, um, which is all about um, operating uh, in a ultra, ultra transparent way as a premium news publisher. Um, We are really, really interested in serving audiences differently. I think a lot of the advertisers that we worked with saw that vision, believed in the vision, believed in the team, um, and and wanted to take, uh, I would say, harness the momentum of being first and harness the momentum of being on this journey with us from day one, capitalizing on the buzz, the engagement, the attention, the growth, 
Um, and re- it's really placing a strategic bet early with a team and with a platform that you believe in um, that can yield a ton of value from an earned media perspective, from a you know incremental paid media perspective, and 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 from a brand standpoint. And so um, th- that's really where where we were focused. Got it. So um, with those partners, I'm curious, kind of what the nature of the partnerships kind of looked like? Like, can you get into some of the examples of, to your point, those more creative custom uh, campaigns that you worked with on them? Yeah, definitely. I, I can I can give two or three different examples. So um, Genesis is a is a great example that we have where we're working with them across platforms from our email newsletters to our video journalism, which by the way is being headed up by Joe Posner, who's incredible. He joined Semaphore from Vox, where he ran their video team for about eight years. And um, we're also working with them across premium advertising. But the real, I think, crown jewel in the relationship is that many of Semaphore's newsmaker events are going to be taking place at Genesis House in New York City. Um, We really wanted to think in a non-traditional way about how we can marry our strengths, you know, with with Genesis's in order to create something that's of high value for their brand, for their audiences, um, really to be able to kind of combine and conquer in, in new ways. Um, Verizon is another great example where they're also tapping into Semaphore's platforms from a premium advertising perspective, um, but we're also working together to launch new product experiences. If you've been reading any of Semaphore's site or newsletters, you probably have seen One Good Text is a mainstay of a lot of our different um, franchises. Um, We're actually going to be spinning that into an end-to-end interview series, which Verizon is going to be powering with us and for us. Um, And so we really wanted to think about, of course, how our different launch partners can tap into our growth and tap into our our, our products in that way, but also how they can tap into our creativity and our appetite to invent and launch new products and new experiences across the portfolio. So I think those are those are two good examples that rise to the top. Got it. And was there kind of a threshold that you had set for launch partners in terms of like a uh, spending or like a, a budget kind of that they had to reach? Or was it more so about some of finding people who could really partner on these you know, more innovative products that you're kind of launching in tandem with the campaigns? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, our our goal was to, um, you know, engage with partners who believed in our mission and believed in our team. Um, most of these partnerships are are long-term in nature. We really, again, want to lean into strategic partnerships that are highly, highly customized and creative to meet our clients' needs versus um, more traditional transactional um, advertising. We don't, for example, um, like we're, we're not open from a programmatic perspective right now. Our strategy, especially in our early chapters, is very, very focused on premium, direct relationships with brands. Got it. No programmatic at all, like not even in a private marketplace? Not at this time. Got it. Okay. Um, I'll probably ask a little bit more about that later in like future strategy questions. But um, so, I mean, with these launch partners, are you were you able to get them to sign on for, you mentioned a few of them are long-term. So it sounds like long-term uh, partnerships are a priority, but for like, you know, spending ranges? Were you able to get them to, you know, reach upwards of like seven figures of revenue? Like, are they kind of really coming on strong uh, with this initial cohort, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I can't speak to the details of, of each partnership and of each collaboration that we have, but I'd say macro from a just semaphore 
um, monetization and go-to-market perspective, we're, we're well ahead of where we expected to be at this moment, which is essentially our launch moment. Um, and we are going to continue to work with the launch partners that we um, kind of shared here, in, in addition to other brands who are going to start tapping into what we're doing starting in 2023 and into first half and second half of next year. Got it. Okay. So um, with the the length of partnerships too, I feel like there's been a somewhat of a trend I've noticed of kind of advertisers going larger with fewer partners in a economic downturn. I've heard a few uh, revenue chiefs kind of talking about this. It's not always uh, not always the case because I feel like it's sometimes hard to get advertisers to spend a lot right now. But I am curious, like, are you, when you're talking with new partners, um, you know, looking ahead into 2023, is that kind of high touch, um, long term, you know, and maybe I'm curious about what your definition of a long term partnership would be. But is that kind of the uh, priority on your sales team right now? Is that what you're getting your team to really focus on? Yeah, I mean, I think our priority is building a suite of capabilities that are so incredibly valuable to clients that, um, so we're, we're, I think, operating more in a, in a client-first way than in a semaphore-first way in, in terms mm-hmm. of, like, our we want our priorities to be our clients' priorities and there have been a couple that have really risen to the top, and we're, we're building a lot of our products around that. One big theme there has been um, really that building relationships with clients' stakeholders, which is actually a much smaller group, is becoming more important, as important as mass blanket reach. Um, I think especially in a moment like we're in now, high, high quality um, uh, engagement with stakeholders that are important for brand reputation purposes is really, really important to advertisers. We're also hearing a lot that there is an appetite for non-polarizing news environments as well, which again has represented wind in our sales because what we're hearing from a lot of folks is that their audiences, their stakeholders are engaging deeply with news. But a lot of brands I think are concerned that there aren't enough options out there that are non-polarizing, that aren't subject to a lot of the frustrations that audiences feel around, you know, bias. And um, I think uh, really trying to achieve a sense of balance is really important and has been resonating. Um, And again, I think there's still a big imperative around innovation and originality. And brands are, are seeing working with Semaphore as an opportunity to, again, place a strategic bet on a new high growth media company um, who is really trying to respond to what readers and audiences are looking for, which, again, is audiences are sick of polarization. They're sick of bias. Um, they're sick of information overload. I think there is a sense that um, a lot of, of media today is extremely U.S. and Western centric as well. Meanwhile, audiences are um, really much more global in their sensibility and in, in their lives. And so I think what we're really trying to do is work backwards from reader uh, frustrations, which we see as opportunities to serve them better, and then also work backwards from um, you know what our clients' needs are as well in order to build a great product with a great set of capabilities um, on top of that product that we can bring to market. Got it. So you mentioned that there's this kind of client focus of wanting to reach the right, I think, maybe subset of people who are going to be able to 
actually work with them. I feel like in a corporate setting, you know, that's kind of filtering down to people who are the actual, you know, budget managers of a company and things of that nature, perhaps in the hiring realm as well. But what are some of the kind of KPIs within that that you're really seeing clients focus on in this area? Just because with a, I think a corporate client Mm -hmm. focus, it could be different from what we see in, you know, regular consumer advertising. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're we're much more focused at the moment on that corporate reputation, corporate affairs focused um, set of KPIs and set of budgets. Um, we've actually seen this incredible um, opening with different um, marketing as well as communications teams. We're seeing marketing communications and advertising actually all starting to work together in really accelerated ways on the brand and client side. Um, And what's kind of interesting is I think that the shift that you noted on the publisher side, where many, many different teams are consolidating and starting to work closely together, the same thing is happening on the brand side as well. And so um, I think the, the KPIs are much more focused on engagement, on favorability, on reputation, um, on, you know, KPIs that are focused a bit more on um, moving the reputation needle than blanket reach. Got it. Okay, interesting. With that, I'm curious in like the kind of post-sale roles that you might have on your team, does that mean that there's a big focus on like brand lift studies or trying to uh, make sure that you can report back like the actual reputation shifts um, to that point? Because I feel like that could be a slight challenge in terms of in terms of like measuring the success of a campaign if it is focused more on that kind of um, reputation or uh, favorability even. Yeah, definitely. I mean, our, our, our first order of business here has really been around incredible execution against all of our campaigns um, and making sure that we have all of the different components of these programs up and running and, and executed beautifully from our email newsletters to our video um, uh, alignments to our event sponsorships. This is like a whole other wing of the business that we didn't talk about, which is a huge, huge emphasis on a part of the company we're calling Semaphore Experiences, really trying to take, take a different approach to live journalism and to the, the stakeholder intelligence um, that can be possible for brands around live journalism um, in order to build reputation and reach the right stakeholders. Um, so we're really, really focused on great creative, great ideation, great execution, um, and then, of course, delivery and, and measurement and optimization in line as the campaigns run into Q4 and into next year as well. Got it. Got it. So launching, obviously, is a huge focus. Measurement kind of comes in once the campaign's closed. Yeah, the, it's it's just unique. Place. It's just unique depending on the partner. It's unique depending on the partnership. It's unique depending on the audiences that they're trying to reach, the markets they're trying to engage with. Um, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So kind of switching gears to uh, touching on your experiential business. And then also I know it's been reported that you're going to be considering a paywall in about a year's time. Um, but looking at the more... Uh, I guess, opportunities for consumer revenue. With the experiential and events business, do you anticipate having tickets, uh, ticket sales as a revenue stream? Is it solely focused on sponsorship revenue for the time being, or how are you approaching events? Yeah, that's a great question. For the moment, our focus is on just the quality and caliber of the journalism that takes place on stage and, and within these experiences. Um, 
sponsorships and partnerships are going to be a part of what brings those to life from a commercial perspective. Um, we've, we've started thinking about membership for certain tracks of our experiences business, um, but we mm-hmm. haven't introduced that just yet. And we haven't introduced um, yeah, t- uh, like the ticketing or consumer revenue just yet. We're really much more focused on kind of a, opinion leaders and influential audiences. I'd say having um having huge, huge reach is not our number one focus from an events and experiences perspective, but rather being able to pull off really, really great events that are, um, you know, purpose-driven, really editorially rich on specific topics and bring together the right combination of stakeholders um, from a policy perspective, from a business perspective, from an opinion leader perspective around various topics. Got it. So is like um, implication of events from like, you know, publishing virtual recordings afterwards, is that not so much of the strategy or do you find that as a possibility? Yeah, it is. And I think that's a good distinction between um, just the the very, very high bar we want to set for the in-person experiences. Um, We are born post-COVID and so hybrid experiences, amplification around those experiences is a big part of our strategy too. I think we're going to be able to pull off some really interesting things at the intersection of video and live events and experiences that we're excited about. Um, and so it's really just a function of the goals editorially and the goals from a from a marketer perspective too, in terms of uh, which partners come on board um, and what we're trying to accomplish um, with the event. Got it. And are you doing any um, events that are created specifically for sponsors? So either maybe not white label, but like custom events um, that are specifically for a sponsor versus being editorially led? Everything that we do is editorially led. Um, And we've got an unbelievable leader from within the newsroom, our founding editor at large, Steve Clemens, who together with Justin, um, they were a big part of architecting um, a long time ago, the Atlantic's live events business um, and have just been such innovators in the live journalism space over the past several decades. And so we're we're cooking up a lot of exciting things as we head into next year um, that I think are going to be really fresh and really disruptive and really different in terms of the editorial topics, in terms of the experience for attendees, in terms of the activations for sponsors. Um, so we're really, really lean, leaning into this. And, and I think that we see an opening and a lot of appetite from our partners as well to start to show up in a thoughtful way in person um, to be able to, again, build and maintain relationships with audiences and stakeholders that matter most to their businesses, to their brands, um, and who also are very engaged with our journalism alongside it. Got it. Got it. How many events are you anticipating will be hosted next year? Oh my gosh, a lot. I think we're, I think we're going to go really big. We've done 11 so far and we, this is, this is right as we've launched. So um, we've, we've begun kicking off with our events business already and don't don't have an exact schedule, um, but I think that you're going to see us operating at a pretty high velocity. Even even with a scrappy team as a startup, I think we're uniquely positioned to to execute and to pull these things off. We've got a stunning event space in Washington D.C. Um, together with our strategic partner, which is Gallup. Um, so a lot of our events, especially in the Beltway, are in Gallup's Great Hall, um, and we've we've hosted a number of them there as well, and they've been successful and and. Uh, well attended and generated a lot, a lot of buzz as well. Cool. And then getting into uh, kind of paywall ambitions, I know that that's still like a year out for, from now, but um, to, you know, what we were talking about earlier about this kind of uh, 
you know, cross-functionality in revenue teams, that's been something that a lot of CROs have had to take ownership of um, in the past year. Have you got any experience with operating and overseeing a subscriptions business? Or how are you kind of thinking about the opportunity to build one, um, you know, a year after launch, right? Because I feel like that's a lot of time to plan, but also there needs to be a lot of time to warm up an audience to being willing to pay for something that has historically been free to them. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why it was so important to us out of the gate to focus on premium advertising, brand partnerships, sponsorships to fuel our growth. We've got really, really broad global ambitions in terms of the audiences that we're trying to serve. And I think the the bet that we wanted to place is that you know, we want, we want to go out of the gate with a really clear mission, you know, which is to provide independent, high-quality global news with totally unprecedented transparency. You know, we wanted to try to combat polarization. We wanted to try to address information overload with new products, new experiences, you know, a new way to design and ultimately experience journalism. That, that was thesis number one. You know, we wanted to launch broadly on a number of different channels. And we wanted to scale and grow and allow our journalism to be engaged with and experienced very, very widely. Um, We didn't want to blunt our growth. We didn't want to blunt audiences' um, opportunity to get to know us, to engage with us, and to start to see the differentiation and the value in the platform that we were building. Mm -hmm. And so we are, you know, taking a ton of data in, a ton of audience insights in, and we're going to be really, really closely watching and analyzing and calibrating our strategy based on some of the analytics that we're seeing and ultimately are going to move towards introducing, um, you know, maybe a meter, maybe a paywall um, when it's the right time to do that. But for the time being, our uh, obsessive focus is on producing a super high quality, super differentiated product Um, to start to pioneer a different form of journalism. We didn't get to talk a ton about this, but um, we're really trying to expose the architecture of our stories, delineate between the news, the reporter's analysis, a counter analysis, a global perspective, um, and really think about news and stories much more kaleidoscopically. Um, We're hearing a ton from readers that there is an appetite for that. So in the context of the sequencing of the business model, we're really focused on growth, on reaching broad um, audiences, um, you know, within that opinion leader set, um, and then ultimately introducing a paywall over time um, when it when it's right for the business. Got it. And you had mentioned that there's the potential of doing some sort of membership model around events um, in the future. I don't think you've launched that yet, but you mentioned this kind of idea of one. Um, how does membership kind of appeal to you? Like, what's the appeal of a membership model versus more of a traditional subscription model? And and I guess, how are you thinking about the role of both of those? Yeah. I mean, so, so this is, this is not something that is launched. Like, again, the, the framing was just, this is something that um, we're thinking about. And I, I think it's distinct. I think access to semaphore events and experiences are just a, a unique track compared to access to our digital ecosystems, our email newsletters and, and other um, touch points for our journalism. So we just want to make sure that we have the most thoughtful strategic models in place across our whole ecosystem. Um, but early, early days, um, brand partnerships, premium advertising, um, you know, very, very uh, kind of reputation and thought leadership focused 
um, collaborations with with marketers are uh, are the top priority. Got it. Got it. So, kind of thinking holistically about the revenue streams that you have in place and kind of your process of adding diversification of revenue down the line. I'm curious, you know, in the first year that Semaphore will be reliant on this model of 75% advertising and 25% events, do you anticipate, you know, possibly reaching like profitability in the first year based on these revenue streams that you have? Like, are you kind of anticipating, um, you know, a positive revenue growth year? It's a startup in a tough time, but yeah, how are you kind of anticipating the first year will net out? Yeah, I mean, as a leadership team, we have been calibrating many, many different scenarios and planning backwards from a number of different scenarios. Um, I can't speak to the details of where we think we're going to land um, over over the course of the year, but I can say that on launch day for where we are here, you know, we set out to achieve a series of goals and milestones earlier in 2022 tied to launch. And we're really, really pleased with our performance relative to those milestones as we have, you know, pushed into a launch that to us was really successful and really rewarding and worth the incredible amount of work and perseverance that it took to, to build something from the ground up. So it was a new experience for, for many of us, you know, tagging into a startup environment coming from a lot of big institutions. So we're really proud of what we built and really proud of what we launched and can say for sure that we're ahead of where we anticipated to be from a commercial standpoint at this point. Um, but as we look into 2023, our focus has been on scenario planning and being really smart about how we prioritize and scale and grow the business, um, you know, in the context of the success so far, some of the, you know, variables out on the horizon and, um, you know, what we see our opportunity is relative to the marketplace. So prior to launch, uh, Semaphore raised $25 million. Is there the chance that you're going to be pursuing another round of funding at all? Are you going to be looking for other investments or are you trying to do this based on the revenue streams that you've built up since launch? All in the spirit of scenario planning and really modeling out a number of different possibilities in terms of where we're going to land across advertising and across events and um, thinking really, really hard about the resources that we're going to need to be able to build and scale all different parts of the company effectively. Um, so we're, we're modeling off a number of different scenarios and um, can't, can't say for sure. Got it. All right. So um, just looking ahead into 2023, and this is one of the trends that I've kind of been following in the media industry at large. Um, some some media companies, some media execs have said that they are noticing that advertising budgets aren't really set in stone for the next year. And so there's been a lot of in-quarter spending versus planned ahead spending. Um, not sure what all the terminology might net out to be. And, but um, I'm curious if you've noticed that uh, maybe compared to where you were in your last role at the Times, if the timelines for advertisers for spending um, is compressed a little bit to just kind of like buy and get out or like get the campaign out right away, or if 2023 you've had an easier time kind of planning out uh campaigns, you know, a few months in advance? Like what's the kind of sales cycle that you're experiencing right now? Yeah, it is 
different for every client. It's different for every industry. And it's also different for different kinds of collaborations. It's, it's a really, really interesting time to be a premium publisher right now because you've, I, I joke about this a little bit, you almost have to play many different sports all at the same time because there are certain clients who really want to work in a long-term way that want to have a foundational presence, you know, because of their KPIs or because of the characteristics of their campaigns. Um, there are some partners for whom one day or one week is the most important uh, moment for their brand. They've got a specific message that they want to activate around a certain audience that they want to engage at a specific period of time. Um, so it, it really, really runs the gambit. For us, um, I think our partners are seeing a lot of value in aligning with us early and in having the opportunity to activate with us over our first year, just because we're in such hyper growth mode. So I think what Semaphore is experiencing might be a little bit unique from what you are touching on as it relates to the broader marketplace. Um, but I certainly have seen and experienced what you're describing, which is just a, a lot of dynamism in the market. And I think marketers understandably want to hold on to flexibility to the extent that they can and um, also want to create room and space to uh, work with new partners, to experiment, as I mentioned before, to try to reach their audiences in new and differentiated ways. It's a really saturated market. And I think that's another part of why a lot of brands have been excited to get involved with Semaphore is because we represent a new path to engage the audiences and, and stakeholders that matter to them. And, and we're trying to do that with a high level of creativity um, through all of our different platforms, through new approaches to thought leadership. We didn't touch on kind of our, uh, I would say, agile, very quick turn approach to branded content and custom content, which is a new thing that we're pioneering. Um, so we're really trying to operate with a lot of sensitivity to what marketers are trying to achieve and the kinds of products and workflows and turnaround times that that they need um, with, with publishers. Because I think that we're, we're trying to pull off product innovation and commercial innovation and process innovation and just trying to, to do a lot of things in new and different ways all, all together at the same time. All right. And then to wrap up this conversation, I did want to get back to your team structure a little bit and how you've been hiring or prioritizing certain roles. Um, I feel like selling is obviously uh, a big key role for you um, based on your focus on direct relationships with clients. But um, I'm guessing that there needs to be a solid team of post-sales roles as well in order to support some of these more creative campaigns. Um, how have you been hiring? Like, what's your kind of growth goals um, from a personnel standpoint? Yeah, definitely. I, I'm kind of thinking of like four different layers to our team right now. And we're all wearing so many different hats. It's been, it's been so much fun for me to, to experience so many different things that I wasn't working on previously um, and, and others as well. But sales is, a, and really, um, I, I would call it our partnerships team because we're, we're focused on building these really original, new and different kinds of collaborations. So our sales and partnerships uh, team is one. Um, operations is another big area of focus with so many different channels, so much kind of sophisticated cross-functional work that needs to happen. Um, we need to have a really smart layer of operations and kind of integrated 
production that happens across the team. Um, also, of course, focused on creative and marketing um, and really folks on that side who've got experience in um, corporate affairs and corporate reputation communications. We're really trying to um, continue to augment our ability to support advertisers on that front. And then additionally, um, you know, planning and ops and data and product and the list goes on and on. Um, it certainly takes a lot of different kinds of skill sets to build a compelling, exciting commercial operation within a, a media company. But we're really focused on partnerships, on operations, um, on, on creative and strategy and, and reputation, um, and then also on the kind of more product and data and analytics and measurement side of the house as well. Got it. And are you still hiring for any of those teams? All of those teams. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This was really fascinating to learn about the ins and outs of what's actually going on um, as you build a revenue team in a media startup. Thank you for having me. It's been it's been such an adventure and I'm so proud of the team so far and proud of the response. Oh my gosh, we were just so, so humbled by um, the reception at launch and, and the great coverage and the great response. And I think we see our responsibility to continue to grow and to continue to execute against the mission. And actually just a, a quick question that I forgot to ask. Um, I can't believe I didn't ask. Where are you with audience? Like, have you kind of surpassed your initial goals? Do you have, um, you know, a number of newsletter signups already that you could share? We have been live for six days, Mira. Six days. We sim- sim- similar to the revenue side. Um, we we've been really humbled um, and have have certainly exceeded our expectations, both on the traffic front and on the newsletter subscription front. I can't speak to the exact metrics, but but I can say that in our first four, five, six business days of, of publishing, we've been really, really encouraged by the growth uh, and, and we see being able to continue um, at, a, at a pretty exciting rate. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much again, Rachel. Thank you. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode. 